Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. This is a soldier. When our country needed them, they stepped forward from the crowd, and then they looked back at us and said, I will protect you. This is a soldier. They said, I'll do it, whether it's my boots in the mud, my charter in the sea, or my eyes in the sky. I'll go on your behalf. I'll stand shoulder to shoulder with your brother, with your sister. I will laugh with him. I will cry with him. I will fight with them. I will even die with them. This is a soldier. So they cut their hair. They changed their names. They took their orders. They got up at four, stayed up till twelve. The next day, they ran. They sweat. They pushed. They hauled. They marched. They yelled. They served. They beat their chest. They stood in our place. This is a soldier. They sacrificed their time. Sometimes their lives. Lives cut short in the name of the red, white, and blue. Lives cut short because our freedoms depend on it. This is a soldier. So today, we, the church, honor you. You who are left behind. To carry on their name. To carry on their memory. To carry on their flag. We are the church. So we mourn with those who mourn. We are the church. So we care for the widows and orphans. We are the church. So we honor those who have fallen in service. And honor to you, widows and orphans of war. Honor to you, the mothers and fathers who battle on. Honor to your greatest of sacrifices. May God bless you. Good morning. I want to thank you for joining with us this morning for worship and for the study of God's Word together. And for those of you who are joining us for the first time, I want to welcome you and pray that your time with us will be spiritually enriching and rewarding. I would also like to encourage everyone, whether you're uh, visiting with us for the first time or whether you are a regular member of our church and broadcasts, I would encourage you to go to our website, 
uh, www.wintonchurch, one word, lowercase, wintonchurch.org. And there you will find uh, a lot of different resources and information uh, that can help you um, as we're going through this time uh, in the coronavirus pandemic. You'll find updates on reopening the church campus. You'll find reports on new ministries that will be beginning. Some of them we hope to begin this next week. Uh, You'll find sermon notes for today sermon and for uh, past sermons as well. And if you subscribe to our web page, then any new postings uh, will be sent to you automatically. The question continues to be asked, when will we as a church get back to worship, to Bible study, to ministry, and to fellowship on the church campus? To let you know that uh, church leaders met here on Wednesday evening, May 20th, that uh, included the deacons of the church as well as the pastors of the church, and we agreed upon reopening the church campus when Merced County advances to stage three in the state's pandemic roadmap. And that may be as early as Sunday, June 7. We're working on plans and procedures for a safe and responsible reopening of our church campus. I was informed by Pastor Chris uh, just uh, a little while ago that President Trump has ordered churches to be reopened now and that he will discuss such reopening uh, with governors uh, of the states should they have a problem with that. So despite uh, where we're at uh, now in the second month of uh, coronavirus, uh, we're looking at the end of the tunnel. We're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And we are working as a church to put things in place that will help us to be together on campus in a very safe uh, and responsible way so that you will not feel threatened by coming to the church campus for worship, Bible study, fellowship, ministry activities, so on and so forth. I will also tell you that uh, in our discussions we are uh, very cognizant of the fact that, and I know some of you don't like the term, but I'm going to use it anyway, that there is going to be a new normal for us as a church. Uh, There are going to be some changes made in how we do things here that we think are going to be for the betterment of the church as well as uh, for the benefit of those who come to worship and serve here as well. So you'll want to be aware of those changes, and we will certainly make you aware of those changes um, through our Deacon Family Ministries as well as through postings on our website. I'd like for us to join together this morning for uh, a moment of prayer as we begin our worship time together. Heavenly Father, we are honored to be here today and to share from your word those truths that are 
vital for us, important to us as a people, as a church, as a family in Christ. And while we are thinking about this weekend, uh, we are also honored to remember and to celebrate the willingness and the courage and sacrifice of the many brave men and women who have given their lives to secure and to maintain the freedoms of our people throughout the history of our great nation. Those individuals who have made the ultimate sacrifice and have paid the supreme price to protect us from tyranny, from oppression, from conquest, and from terror. We salute all of those who now serve as well, or who have served and yet remain with us today. We uh, celebrate those whose freedoms may remain to be enjoyed by all who live in this great land. And so I thank you. I thank you for these who've gone on before us and these who remain with us. And Lord, I thank you for my father and for other family members and friends who willingly served this country in World War II, in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, and many other places around our world. We pray for them and we pray for their families. And we also pray for the families of those who never returned to their homes but have made their final resting place in cemeteries and memorial gardens and parks all across our nation and all across the nations of the world. But most of all, Father, I thank you for Jesus, who through the willingness of his own heart and through the sacrifice of his own life, he secured for all who believe in him and trust in him, He gave salvation from hell. He gave freedom from sin and judgment for sin. He gave peace with you and eternal life in your kingdom. And so while we honor our dead on this Memorial Day weekend, we celebrate the death and the burial and the resurrection, the ascension and the imminent return of Jesus Christ our Lord, whom to know is life everlasting, full, and free by your grace through faith. It's in his name, the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, your Son, that I pray these things. Amen and amen. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In our last uh, sermon on the life of Christ, we referred to this passage of Scripture, and we're going to continue on with this passage of Scripture because there's so much in these beginning chapters of the life of Jesus that um, it, it behooves us to slow down and to take uh, a very concerted and careful look at what is being said in the Word so that we can gain from it uh, those truths that will enrich 
not only our understanding of Jesus Christ, but also our fellowship with Jesus Christ as we continue to live for him. And so Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 and reading through verse 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of God, and we ask his blessing upon the reading and the study of his word. You know, nowadays we don't speak much of a legacy anymore. I doubt that very many people even know what a legacy is or what the word legacy means. Uh, we're quite familiar with the term last will and testament because many of you have made out uh, your last will and testament and maybe some of you have uh, had parents or grandparents uh, that have included you in their last will and testament. Uh, a last will and testament is uh, an instrument of uh, things of value left to someone when someone else dies. We also know what heritage is. A heritage is something that is or may be inherited from a previous generation. And we know what the word heirloom means. An heirloom is an object of personal or intrinsic value passed down through family members for generation after generation after generation. And some of those heirlooms may include uh, a photograph or series of photographs, uh, a ring or a tie tack or uh, something uh, of that nature, jewelry that can be worn. It could include furniture. I have in my home 
home a couple of pieces of furniture that were given to Nancy and I by my mother. Uh, And we uh, think of her often when we see those pieces of furniture in our home. So we know what heirlooms are all about. But a legacy, a legacy is something that is transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor that impacts or transforms lives. It's not just an object to look at, an object to cherish, put up on a mantle, put in a, uh, a, a table or on a table on display. But it, it is something that we receive from someone who's gone on before us that impacts our lives, that transforms our lives when that legacy is received. Let me give you a couple of examples of what uh, a legacy can be. First of all, a legacy can be money or property or resources left to a person or an institution that's of great worth and great value, ongoing worth and value to that person or an institution. For instance, he left a legacy of a new hospital wing in honor of of his father. A new hospital wing uh, is not uh, built uh, by funds given to the hospital by an individual just to stand there and look pretty or to uh, just bear the plaque of the name of the individual who gave the money, but it serves a purpose in helping people who may be ill, people who need medical procedures, people who need hospitalizations. A legacy given from someone to someone else that impacts their life and transforms their life. A legacy could also be a reputation based upon values and principles and activities. For instance, her legacy was one of generosity and compassion and a positive attitude. And we know many individuals in history who have impacted other individuals, impacted groups of individuals with their attitudes, with their actions, with their values and their principles. And some of those individuals have been impacted in such a way that their lives have been transformed by that person who left that legacy. A third example would be the effects left by a person or an event. Something that happened a long time ago, uh, uh, the the effects of which are still being felt today. An example would be Hitler's Third Reich, which left a legacy of pain and suffering, not only to the German people, but to the world, and especially to those who were persecuted by his regime. A fourth example of a legacy would be characteristics passed on through someone's descendants. An example would be her artistry or her artistic legacy lives on through her children. There are individuals in 
families that have uh, received a legacy through the genetic connection that they have with ancestors that have given them a marvelous gift of, say, music or painting or the ability to uh, construct things, uh, to create uh, beautiful things. And so a legacy could be a characteristic of an individual that is passed down through succeeding generations uh, that reflect the artistic uh, ability of the one who went on before them. Those are some examples of what a legacy are, what a legacy can be, what a legacy is. Lisa Heisha, writer for the Huffington Post, asked the question, quote, Have you ever thought about the legacy that you're leaving your family, your community, your world? Most people never give it a second thought. But a legacy is something you're creating every day, whether you realize it or not. End quote. Have you ever thought about the legacy that has been left to you from your ancestors? Have you ever thought about the legacy that you are leaving to your descendants? Something to think about. Something to reflect on. You know, Jesus left a legacy, but his legacy is unlike any mentioned in Webster's Dictionary. And I want to explore with you that legacy found in the words of Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. I want you to look at those verses again. Luke 1, verses 31 through 33. The angel Gabriel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. There are five aspects to the legacy that Jesus has left us in these few verses that I've just read. And those five aspects include, number one, his name, which is Jesus. Two, that he will be great. And we need to understand what that means. Number three, he will be called the Son of the Most High. Four, he will be given the throne of his father, David. And five, his reign and his kingdom will be eternal. Five aspects of the legacy that Jesus has left to the world. But today, I want to reflect on the first one only, and that is the legacy of his name. In the text... The angel Gabriel said to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You will call his name Jesus. Have you ever thought about why God 
would want his son to be called Jesus. There are a number of names that God could have chosen to name his son. But he chose to name him Jesus. Why? The angel Gabriel's name means man of God. Certainly a worthy name for the Son of God to be called Gabriel. The archangel Michael's name means who is like God. Certainly there has never been an individual who has lived upon the face of the earth that was like God than Jesus Christ himself. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that he is the embodiment of the image of God manifest in the flesh. He could have been called Michael. The most famous judge of the Old Testament was named Samuel, which means heard by God. Certainly Jesus prayed constantly in his life and in his ministry. And he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was heard by God in his prayers and in his meditation. God could have called his name Samuel, the one who is heard by God. What about the name of the great king David? His name means beloved one which Jesus certainly was in this life. Then there is the name Abraham, which means father of nations, which Jesus will be one day when his kingdom is established here on the earth. Any one of these names would have been a worthy name for the Son of God. So why choose the name Jesus? And why does Scripture tell us that we must believe on His name in order to be saved? Since biblical names are often indicative of the person who bears the name, there is no other name fitting for the Christ than the name Jesus. Now there is no way anyone can plumb the depths or scale the heights of all that the name Jesus means in a month, let alone in under an hour. So we're only going to scratch the surface here as we take a look at the aspect of his legacy through his name, Jesus. If there ever was a name filled with importance and consequence, it's the name Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul tells us that God has highly exalted him, not Paul, but has highly exalted Jesus, and given him a name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is a name above every other name. 
It is a name that God has bestowed upon him. And it's a name that is going to be recognized by every individual who has lived or who will ever live. And when that name is spoken, every individual will bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Well, let's take a look at the etymology of the name Jesus for just a moment. The name Jesus is the English translation of the New Testament Greek name Iesus. Iesus. And that is a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew name Yehoshua. Yehoshua or Joshua in the English language. Both names, both Jesus and Yehoshua, both of those names mean Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the name of the one true and living God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his name means God is salvation, or God saves. Now of the nearly 1,000 times the name Jesus is mentioned in the New Testament, only twice does it refer to someone else other than Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul and his traveling companion, the Apostle Barnabas, met a false prophet on the Isle of Paphos named Bar-Jesus. But he was an evil man. He was a warlock. He was a sorcerer. He was a false prophet. But he was named Bar-Jesus, meaning son of Jesus. And then in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 11, there's mentioned a friend and fellow servant of the Apostle Paul, and his name is Jesus, but he's also called Justice. So there are Two out of nearly a thousand instances in which the name Jesus is mentioned in the New Testament that refer to someone else other than the Son of God, other than the Christ. And so we may very well think that because uh, the reference to Jesus is exclusive to the Son of God, then it must be a very rare name. It must be a name that was not a very common name in the times in which Jesus lived. But the opposite is really true. The name Jesus was a very common name in Israel in those days. Because again, it is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua was a great hero to the people of Israel. And so they would name their sons Joshua. And then when Greek became the national language, when the nation of Greece, the empire of Greece, uh, conquered the world and people began to speak Koine Greek, then they translated the name Joshua into the Greek name Jesus. Which in the minds of many individuals 
in that day and time meant Joshua. It was a common name. And one of the reasons why we know that it was a common name, not only from the writings of Josephus and from other historians of the time, but by the designations that, gi- that, the designations that are given to Jesus when his name is mentioned. He is called Jesus the Christ. He is called Jesus of Nazareth. He is called Jesus the Son of Mary. And that's to distinguish him from all of the other individuals who had that same name. But even though the name of Jesus was a common name in that day, it's not without supreme importance when referring to the Son of God. And it was no accident And it was no coincidence that God chose the name Jesus to identify his son here on earth. His name reflects a certain characteristic, a certain mission, a certain purpose, if you will. He was sent from heaven for a particular purpose. And his personal name bears witness to that purpose for which he was sent. And that was that he would save people from sin and from judgment. In Matthew chapter 1 verses 20 and 21, the same angel Gabriel who spoke to Mary speaks to Joseph the betrothed of Mary. And he says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. The same words that he said to Mary, but he adds this in his speech to Joseph. She will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. That was the purpose for which God sent his son to become incarnate flesh. And his name reflects that purpose, that he will save his people from their sins. There is no other man named Jesus that has had those credentials. There is no other man in the past, in the present, or will there ever be another man with the name J-E-S-U-S that will bear those credentials. No one else has been or will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. No one else can or will save people from sin. Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the Son of Man, Jesus the Son of Mary is the only one who claims those credentials of being spirit-conceived and Savior of the world. Now as I said Jesus is the English name for Jesus, which is the Greek name, which is a translation of Yehoshua, which is the Jewish name. 
And so that name goes all the way back to an individual that we're familiar with in the Old Testament, the name of Joshua, found in the book of Joshua. Historically, Joshua led Israel to the land that God had promised them through Abraham. Joshua led God's people to victory over their enemies as they went across the Jordan River and into the promised land. He was given the task of conquering the people who possessed the land of promise. Those individuals, the Canaanites, were the enemies of God's people. And he led God's people to victory over those enemies. Joshua also gifted each of the tribes of Israel with land based upon their faithfulness and their service. So Joshua was a type, a foreshadowing of who Jesus Christ would be. Because when we look at the life of Jesus... And we look at who he was and who he is and what he accomplished. We understand that Jesus leads his people, the Christian church, to victory over sin and spiritual enemies such as Satan, his demonic host, and those used by Satan and his demons as instruments to oppose and to overthrow the kingdom of God. Jesus also gives spiritual gifts to believers through his Holy Spirit that they might serve him and honor him by serving him in their Christian lives. And Jesus has also opened the gates of his kingdom to those who know him as Lord and Savior. So Joshua was a foreshadowing of who Jesus would be. And what Jesus would accomplish on a grander scale, on a greater scale than Joshua was ever able to accomplish. All other saviors, all other messiahs, all other Jesuses or sons of God promise salvation, promise a blessed life and citizenship in an eternal kingdom. But every one of them has failed and will fail. None of them has or ever will fulfill any of the characteristics or the prophecies in Scripture concerning the true Messiah. Every one of them was and is a charlatan seeking power and glory and fame and wealth and influence and pleasure. Every one of them has died and will die. And every one of them remains and will remain in his grave. Why? Because there is no other Savior. There is no other Messiah. There is no other Son of God who is named Jesus that can accomplish all of these things. Or will accomplish all of these things in days and years to come. Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. We need to be aware of individuals who come 
declaring themselves to be the Messiah or wanting to attribute such um, uh, uh, a title to another individual. Know them by their fruits. Know them by the example of their lives. Know them by their characteristics, Jesus said. God did not send his son into this world to be a rock star or a guru or a martyr or an elitist like all false messiahs are. He sent his son to be Lord and Savior to those who believe in him and receive him as the Christ of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Though he was in the form of God, speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And that means he set aside his heavenly glory, his rank and his privileges that he enjoyed before the Incarnation. He set those things aside by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I have studied the lives of many individuals in history who have claimed to be Jesus reincarnate, who've claimed to be a newer Messiah, who've claimed to be the successor to the Christ, and none of them bear the characteristics that the Gospels declare Jesus Christ as possessing, nor do they bear the testimony of the Apostle Paul, a man who was humble, obedient to God, and who offers his life as a sacrifice for the salvation of other individuals. The Lexham survey of theology states, quote, on the one hand, he was just another Jesus, and yet, on the other hand, he was the true Jesus, the one who would live up to the meaning of his name in ways that no one else could. End quote. The name of Jesus is fraught with meaning because of whom it represents. There's power and there is authority in Jesus Christ. And since his name represents his person, there is power and authority in the name of Jesus, more so than in any other name. And yet his name cannot and does not represent fully who he is. But there are some truths that we can and should appreciate about the name and the person of Jesus. Number one, salvation is in the name of Jesus alone. Salvation is in the name of Jesus alone. God sent his son into the world so that the world might be saved through him. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, you know these verses well. But we need to be reminded of them again and again and again. God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That the world might be saved. Not impressed, not enamored, not spellbound, not inspired, but saved through him. Not through him and a long line of successors to him, but him and him alone. All other so-called saviors point the way to their salvation through rules and regulations, through attitudes and actions, through rituals and ceremonies and personal sacrifices. Jesus did not point the way to salvation. Jesus is the way to salvation. We come into the kingdom through him and by no other person or no other means. He is God's salvation to us. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, the apostle Peter stood up and in a sermon he said, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, speaking to the Jews. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. No other name by which we must, by which we can be saved. So Jesus, the name Jesus, is salvation. And there is no other salvation than in the person of Jesus Christ. And by the name of Jesus Christ. Second, forgiveness of sins is received through Jesus alone. Forgiveness of sin is received through Jesus alone. Sin is personal rebellion against God. And because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the standards that God has set for human life and human conduct... And since sin is rebellion against God, the only one who can forgive that rebellion, who can forgive that sin, is God himself. And he has chosen to do so through his son, Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 10 and verse 43, the apostle Peter said to him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. They receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And since his name represents who he is, we receive forgiveness of sin through him. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, He, speaking of Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of of sin. God has delivered us 
from the power of Satan, from the power of sin, from the power of hell. And he has transferred us into the kingdom of Christ who has redeemed us and who has forgiven us. What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to forgive? It means to cancel a debt. It means to remove a penalty for an unpaid debt. It means to choose to no longer honor an, uh, or an injustice or uh, any injury that has befallen us or someone else because of us. In Psalm chapter 103, verses 8 through 14, King David wrote, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions, our sins from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. What does it mean for God to forgive us? When God forgives us, He removes from us our sins. How far? Is there a time when God will remember them again? Is there a time when God will review them again? Is there a time when God will bring them to our mind again? Absolutely not. As far as the east is from the west, which is infinite, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our sins from us. That's the forgiveness of God toward us through his son Jesus Christ. That's the forgiveness that our Lord wants us to practice toward each other. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, asked him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? which is beyond uh, what the rabbis said you should forgive, I think they put the limit on three. And so forgiving someone who sins against you seven times, to forgive them seven times is going above and beyond what was required by the religion of the day. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Infinite as long as the individual seeks your forgiveness, you are to forgive him. And then Jesus gave us the parable of the unforgiving sin, uh, the unforgiving servant, in order to demonstrate the lengths at which God goes to forgive us our sins. Someone said. Those who do not cherish the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ will not look for the opportunity to love and forgive others. Listen to that again. 
those who do not cherish, not recognize, not acknowledge, not think about, but cherish. Those who do not cherish the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ will not look for opportunities to love and forgive others. Third, peace with God is secured through Jesus Christ alone. Peace with God is secured through Jesus Christ alone. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is secured through Jesus and Jesus alone. Understand something, that an unrepentant sinner... An individual who knows he's sinful, but refuses to acknowledge it, refuses to confess it, refuses to repent of it. An unrepentant sinner is not just, a, is not just disobedient to God. An unrepentant sinner is not just disobedient to God. He's not just rebellious toward God. He's not just at odds with God. Scripture says the unrepentant sinner is an enemy of God is an enemy of God and I would go on to say that to an unrepentant sinner God is an enemy to that person God is that unrepentant sinner's enemy James chapter 4 in verse 4 the apostle James writes you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God Therefore, whosoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. And so those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they may be good folks. They may be engaged in worthy causes. They may be very kind and considerate and very compassionate. They may be individuals who uh, abide by the laws. They may be individuals who pay their taxes and treat their children well and, and never argues with the wife or never uh, nags the husband. They may be upstanding citizens. They may be, by anyone's estimation, a model person. But if they do not know Jesus Christ and if they are not a child of God through Jesus Christ, they are an enemy of God. An enemy of God. But scripture tells us, dear friends, that by virtue of Jesus Christ coming to save us, demonstrates God's willingness to be reconciled to us. God is ready to forgive and to save us. God is wanting to share His peace with us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 we read, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were rebellious toward God, while we were disobedient toward God, while we were enemies of God, He sent His Son so that that rebellion might be over, that disobedience might be corrected, and that we would no longer be enemies of God, but friends of God. 
The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is long-suffering. God is patient. If you do not know Jesus Christ, or if you're estranged from the Lord, understand that the only reason you continue to live on the face of this planet, the only reason your heart continues to beat, the only reason you're able to draw your next breath is because God is patient with you, and God is waiting for you to realize that you are estranged from Him, that you are disobedient toward Him, that you are rebellious toward Him, that you are standing at odds with Him, you are an enemy to Him, and He is an enemy to you, and He's waiting for you to repent and to turn to Him. Peace with God is what God desires with every individual. But it is only attainable through Jesus Christ, His Son. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. Jesus Christ Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Peace with God can only be realized through fellowship with Jesus Christ, His Son. Now there are many things in our world today that trouble us and rob us of peace. Currently, the COVID-19 pandemic has robbed a lot of people of peace. Many people have lost their jobs. Many people are upset at government restrictions. Many people are concerned over their own vulnerability in health. And many have lost family members and friends. These things are troubling. These things are disturbing. These things have overshadowed the peace that once resided in their heart. But while these things may, have, may be of grave concern to us, our greatest concern should be our peace with God through Jesus Christ. Our greatest concern should be that in the midst of all the troubles and all of the fears and all of the anxieties that the earth presents to us, we should maintain, we should embrace, we should incorporate the peace of God in our lives by maintaining fellowship with His Son Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
The world can't give us peace. And if we experience peace, it's only for a little while. Peace is so fleeting. We may be free from conflict, but only for a moment. We may be free from anxiety, but there is something lurking right around the corner that's going to stir the pot again. We may be free from fear. But Satan isn't done testing us, tempting us, standing opposed to us. Only Jesus can give us long-lasting, life-changing peace. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be anxious. Do not be... What are you anxious about today? What are you anxious about today? Are you anxious about your health? Are you anxious about your finances? Are you anxious about employment or lack thereof? Are you anxious about government? Are you anxious about the future? Are you anxious about death and what lies beyond? Scripture says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Only Jesus can bring peace to the troubled heart, the troubled mind, the troubled spirit. There is power in the name of Jesus. When you call upon his name, you're calling upon him. When you cry out to him, he hears and he responds. And so breathe his name in the midst of your trials. Speak his name when you face temptations. Praise the name of Jesus when joy floods your soul. Honor the name of Jesus in every situation and circumstance of life. There's power in the name of Jesus. Because any power attributed to the name of Jesus originates in the person of Jesus. Any power that Christians access in Jesus' name comes from true faith in who Jesus is and what he has done and will do for those who believe and trust in him. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14 as they were leaving the upper room and they were going to the place where Jesus would be betrayed and handed over to the priest. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't be troubled. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. You have faith in God? Then trust in Jesus. Fourth and finally, eternal life is given in the name of Jesus alone. Eternal life is given in the name of Jesus alone. In a publication 
printed in October of 2014, produced by Ligonier Ministries and by Lifeway Resources, a publication entitled The State of Theology. There are a number of different things that are stated in that publication, but some of the more arresting findings are contained in that publication with regard to Americans and their attitudes toward Jesus. 53%, 53% of Americans agree that salvation is found through Jesus alone. Only 53% of Americans agree that salvation is found in Jesus alone. 45% of Americans agree that there are many ways to get to heaven. 45% believe there are many ways to get to heaven. 71% of Americans agree an individual must contribute his or her own efforts for personal salvation. 71% must contribute his or her own efforts for personal salvation. That's what's believed by a lot of people. 64% of Americans agree a person obtains peace with God by first taking the initiative and then letting God respond with grace. Peace with God is obtained when you take the initiative and then God comes along and adds His grace. But what does Jesus say? In that same chapter of John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to His disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And the Apostle Paul affirms that truth in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. There is only one way to heaven. There is only one source of eternal life. There is only one door to the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says to the multitude gathered there, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. One gate that leads to hell, and many, many will enter through that gate. It's the gate of religion. It's the gate of popular opinion. It's the gate of false doctrine. It's the gate of personal theological belief. But there is only one gate that leads to heaven, and it is a narrow gate. And few will enter that gate. It's the gate of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is that gate, that narrow gate that leads to eternal life. But by all indications, few people don't believe it.
What about you? Do you believe that there are many ways to heaven or do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Do you believe that there are many ways to salvation or do you believe that Jesus is the only source of salvation? Do you believe that there are many ways to have peace with God or do you believe that Jesus is the only one who can bring us peace with God? Jesus has left a legacy. Some things given by him to be received by us that impacts us and that transforms our lives. Salvation from hell. Forgiveness of sins. Peace with God. Eternal life. That's why God named His Son Jesus. Because that's who He is. Let's pray together. Father, bless now your people that we may appreciate and share with others the legacy that you have left to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have loved us with an infinite love that knows no boundaries. A sacrificial love that has opened the door to your kingdom to all who believe and trust in Jesus Christ, your Son. And a precious love that grows sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. A unique love that can only be received through our experience and our fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Bless us as we celebrate his life and death and resurrection. Bless us as we celebrate our new life in him. Bless us as we remember our families who have loved us and our country enough that they would give of themselves a memorial to the freedoms that we now enjoy. Keep us safe through this holiday weekend and through the duration of the coronavirus pandemic. We look forward to the time when we can join together again here on the church campus to worship you, to study your word, to minister to each other in your name, and to fellowship with each other and with you through your Holy Spirit. These things I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day today and have a great Memorial Weekend holiday. Today we honor the men and women who have died in service to our country. Our debt to the heroic men and valiant women in the service of our country can never be repaid. They have earned our undying gratitude. America will never forget their sacrifices. For love of country, they accepted death.
and they who for their country die shall fill an honored grave. For glory lights the soldier's tomb, and beauty weeps the brave. It is foolish and wrong to mourn the men who die. Rather, we should thank God that such men lived. God bless the families of these men and women. And God bless America. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.